Dude, you know <laughs> you what? Said they're really quiet. Not a cheater, all right? Oh, we got a boy crush on him. Let's talk about this. No, we're going to say Well, this is podcast extra number 206, and apparently we're already starting out with some controversy. Or we like to call it Andy Gate. That's right. Once Andy published Thinking, Tom Brady was found out to be a cheater. You know what? Don't say my book title like that. How dare you? You added the question mark. Yeah, but I didn't add that. He didn't add your voice cracking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't add your 16-year-old. Like yeah. He's he's targeting a younger demographic with his writing. I'm just and, trying to be the voice of the people. Okay, but seriously, yeah, you're, you're going to defend Tom Brady and the cheaters? That's a new band. Okay, first of all, it's Tom Brady, and second of all, he's not a cheater. Oh, the whole team so is, when you, though, when you when you So when you before. fiddle with the equipment for the game to give yourself a competitive advantage, that... that, that Accounts for what? What is that? Well, I'm not. I'm not 100 sure. No, no. I'm just you not know, a hard question to answer. Well, all I'm saying is, balls have air inside them, no, and they sometimes do. a little bit of air leaks out. No, they do. Now, they, they the, totally it's the intention is like nine these. out of or eleven out of twelve of them. <laughs> especially if you take a little needle, like yeah. right before the game, yeah, in a bathroom, <laughs> and you call yourself a deflator. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I'm just trying to lose weight. That's why. <laughs> and you're an official position on the team. Yeah, <laughs> paid position. Just, I think the Super Bowl should go back to Seattle Whatever. or just replay the game. Whatever. Replay. We'd win. In a second game, we would win. Of course we would. Because we'd have healthy players. Yes, we would. And you Russell know would know not to throw that pass. We lost fair and square. And the, Did we? The, de- the deflate yeah. scandal was for the AFC Championship. Yeah, and not the, the you know, it didn't really matter. It's just that the Patriots have a history of cheating and everything. Or what is it? What do they say? <laughs> Bending the rules. Everybody wants to compare it to baseball. I gotta be honest. You don't want to compare anything to baseball. No, not at all. Like baseball is known for all of its stupid cheating, and you know this is what I actually heard people during the steroid scandal saying stuff like, "Well, I mean, baseball's always had people trying to gain competitive advantages, but then somehow we lifted steroids up up above right. greasing the ball and stealing signs and all that stuff." Which I'm still trying to figure out why you can do this, why why you can grease the ball. No, why you can raise what What's the difference? You're gaining a competitive, the size competitive of advantage <laughs> in both ways. And the only difference is that one works better than the other. Like steroids apparently works really well to try to help people hit the ball well. Right? So, so if so Greg it's worse. would take steroids. It's worse. So if... That might actually be a good idea. <laughs> Does that change the voice? No, I'm just trying to... I want somebody out there who's listening to this. I, wa- I would like them to give me a cogent argument for why steroids is different than deflate gate why is it why is the use of steroids to enhance one's performance different than the deflate gate but they're trying to ban deflate gate they're deflating the balls and they're trying to ban steroids absolutely but i'm people are freaking out about they they say i've heard several sports talk show hosts just say oh it's not the same it's not the same but then they never give a reason for why it's not the same and i'm trying to figure out well why isn't it the same because you deflate the ball it affects both teams right no no steroids no no because they bring in different balls yeah oh yeah the balls that you get to play with so it's your it's it's a it provides a competitive advantage Mm. for your team it's a matter of where the needle goes. Does it go in your arm or the ball? <laughs> right. Totally. There are needles there involved either way. Right. That's my point. So the same that's thing. my point here. Yeah. That's that's really so, just <laughs> So should a Christian cheer room. for a team that deliberately cheats? <laughs> should, Andy, how do you feel here's about my, that? Can I have a follow up question? Yeah. Does Andy's book need a second round of printing 
so that he can make a correction and not worship Tom Brady. Oh, that's true. You mentioned him in there. <laughs> it's true that he has three Super Bowl rings. And now he's got four. And now because he's got four. Prophetic. In which he did not cheat to get the fourth one. You're prophetic because this will be taken away from him. Has he Has he admitted to <laughs> he cheating? He actually did cheat to get the fourth one. That's the whole point. Yeah. See, I don't think he's admitted to cheating. And they are, in well, fact, does, five Does now. a cheater ever admit to cheating? <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't like, admit it, so I didn't do it. That's right. Silas. Hey, I'm, I, I, I want to hear a confession before. Who is that? Lance yeah, Armstrong. I, I want to hear a Lance Armstrong on Oprah. Because that's how our system works. Yeah, that's yeah. how it works. You're you got to get on so Oprah. Told your, everyone your, that your story guilty. on Oprah, right? And I'm not going to believe it until that happens. Okay, so what if what if we just have like the normal baseball league, and then we have a league where you're allowed yes. to do whatever you want? <laughs> totally. Football, baseball, basketball. Like that'd be awesome. <laughs> do you know what one people would watch? Yeah, I can. yeah, yeah. Oh, the one totally. on rights. Oh, totally. It'd be all sorts of things happening. Well, there's baseball's not doing so hot in the in the. Uh, in the popularity these days, in attendance wise, I think it's actually That's Toronto's the last place in their division. Yeah, Toronto really is the bellwether of the entire <laughs> league. They are. What's a bellwether? Uh, Toronto. What is the, the actual blue, bellwether? The, the, the isn't it a thing? Well, it's a hotel as well. It's a nice place actually. If you ever want to stay in a nice place in Bellingham, bellwether. You know, to ask you my question. <laughs> I did. What's the bellwether? I told you it's, it's a hotel down the in Bellingham. Bellwether, some sort of yes, nautical uh, term. Yes. I think so. Figure well, of speech, darling. Oh, so you just use words you don't know what they actually mean. Okay. Yeah. Bonus points for saying that. At least I didn't make it up. <laughs> I know. That's pretty good. I had to think about that one for a while. All right. Well, we are in a different room today, and I don't know if you can notice the difference or not, but it's getting really warm in here. <laughs> and I'm a little bit worried about the oxygen, the quantity of oxygen. <laughs> we got, in there's this a little room. hole in the door. So that's where we get our oxygen. There are six of us in a very small very room. Small. <laughs> but it's warming up. Uh, this is Darcy, and this is episode number 206. With me is Andy. It's good to be here. And Jeff. Hi. And Greg. Hi. And Kyle. Hello. And Jeremy. Hello. And Ezra could not make it today. I don't know why, but he's, he's oh, not he said here. he's got a stomach problem. Oh, oh whatever. Sure, right after you a long weekend. Give him what you had over the weekend? That's what he said. He sent me a text message saying that, that I apparently... Gave, I didn't see him all weekend, but apparently I gave him the illness. Did How? you have tummy troubles? I did. I did during my sermon. Really? Which one? Uh, the Which Sunday tummy? morning ones. <laughs> Both of them. Did you have to run out at any time? Well, let's just say that I I barely made it to the 11.15 one. Really? Yeah, really. Didn't, wow, yeah. sorry to hear that. Yeah. I was a good thing. I went Saturday night. Yeah, Normally that was. I, I was feeling Sunday okay. Wow. On the way home, while I was driving home, yeah, it didn't feel so good. Wow. So what, like, what happens if all of a sudden you, like, just couldn't preach? On God Sunday? bless video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So people would get. I it think so. one one time in my mm-hmm. time at Northview, I had we had to run a video on Sunday morning because I went home and same same kind of thing happened. Although it was what much worse. So how <laughs> bad do you guys have to feel before you wouldn't actually go up on stage? Because I know you've preached sick sometimes too, right, Greg? Yeah, it's yeah. It, it's the stomach problems are the things that stop me would stop me. It's when you can't actually stand there and it, head colds and even throats. And so you can usually get around those with uh, with help. And because we have amplification and stuff, yeah. it's, it, you can get around all that. But it's the stomach stuff when you're when you're actually physically so so ill that you you need to be laying down. Hmm. So is there ever any thought that this is some sort of spiritual attack? Sure. On you. And how do you work that out into your head then? 
Well, I have a big enough view of uh, of these things. I think I don't. I I think that uh, Satan can can use sickness and these sorts of things to trouble me. But yeah, I pray about it and ask people to pray for me about it. And sometimes it goes away, and other times it doesn't. I, I feel like every sermon is a spiritual attack. Yeah, you have yeah. to go through a process of almost, um, yeah, it's almost a childbirth thing going on there where there's yeah. a lot of pain, emotional, yeah, pain before you before you, you give uh, a sermon. I tell you, it's like if you ever want to experience spiritual warfare, you know. Preach. Preach. Hmm. Share the share the share the truth. Yeah. This uh, ties in with a question that came in for the podcast here, and if you have questions, send them to extra at northview.org. But it's about the uh, story of Job and what it entails. Uh, it paints God as a jealous and prideful uh, God, and that He's easily duped by Satan into allowing Him to wreak havoc on a blameless and upright follower. Why would He allow this? So, Are, go ahead, Greg. Go ahead. Maybe Kyle. Um, I don't. I don't think God is duped because God is the one who presents Job. You know, Satan's roaming to and fro on the earth, and you know, has a conversation with God, and God is the one that brings Job into the discussion. He's he's the one that says, "Haven't you noticed my servant Job? And look how righteous he is." And then Satan says, "Oh, the only reason he's righteous is because of how you've blessed him." And then God says, "Okay, it's on." We'll see whether God, uh, whether Job loves me for the stuff I've given him or he loves me for me. And so Satan is given reign to take things away from him, his wealth, his family, even his health in the midst of that. Um, and at the end, Job holds on to God and he recognizes that his view of God isn't as big as it, as it needs to be. There's another question here. It says, how is it that Satan can approach God in Job? That's one of the interesting parts about that story is the way that it kind of it portrays the heavenly court as if Satan kind of walks to and fro before God. You know, in most of the Old Testament, he's Satan is seen as the as a prosecuting attorney more than anything else. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's something Even you have Satan's to... Even Satan's name. Yeah, Satan. You, I mean, that's... Accuser. The Greek, right, accuser. accuser. But it, that's what it, it... He really does portray himself as the one who stands before the judge and accuses all these people who God has justified and saying they're they deserve judgment and these sorts of things but yeah it's a part it should be part of I think the way that we understand the heavenly court and probably change our understanding to it to, to fit this sort of thing right. I do think that Kyle's right though that you know the idea that somehow God is being duped or uh, he's capricious because of of these actions, I say I understand that that language a little bit more than the dupe thing. That he he sounds capricious, but only if you think that God's prime directive is the comfort of His people in the present moment. Um, say as a parent, I I know full well that there are things that I permit my kids to endure because I know it will turn them into the kind of people they need to be. Mm. So I I, th I think that God. So would you call me unloving for doing that? In fact, I would say you're unloving and not doing it. Right. It, um, so I, before you, we accuse God of being capricious and mean-spirited about these sorts of things, we should understand that I think his goals are different than, than ours. Do some, some people think 
I'm not saying I hold this view, but some people uh, argue that My Job friend, is a, a friend of yours does. Right. <laughs> that Job is a story. Uh, what in the text would make you think that it's not just a, a story that's that's supposed to teach us some sort of principle? Well, I mean, I think the, the first couple chapters are presented in a historical narrative, which is the genre itself. I mean, the rest of it is poetry. And so I'm willing to, to go a little bit with th that direction because of the nature, nature of the genre that it is poetry after the first couple chapters. But it is presented kind of historically at the beginning. I, my question, actually, I would want to flip it on its head. Why would you assume it, it's not? And, and not that history. Not history. And I, I think that you would have to start with a kind of skepticism in order to arrive at mm -hmm. that conclusion. So... Uh, if it's being presented sort of histor historically, even though there is poetry, I mean, most of the book itself is, is, is written poetic, Hebrew poetic language, you would have to start with a skepticism toward the Bible, toward the, the book of Job itself, in order to arrive at a conclusion that this isn't real. And I don't know why you would do that. And, and maybe it's because you don't like the way God is portrayed. Maybe you don't like the idea that, you know, God doesn't send whirlwinds. So there's a whole bunch of presuppositions that I think that would go into that. <clears throat> I have conversations with people from time to time about this where they'll say they'll they'll bring up certain passages of scripture or whatever and they'll they'll say well that's that's not historical. And I always want to ask them what would lead you like what what's what is to be gained by you saying that? What's driving that argument? Cuz on the face of it it sounds historical. Right. And almost all well it is always there, there is some sort of agenda that someone has. Well, we can't believe in a god who does miracles. Well, we can't believe it, you know, in light of modern science, we can't believe in this or that. Well, because the world is a closed system, we can't believe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it it's, tends tends to be a worldview discussion. <clears throat> Kyle, can you read Job 1:6? Uh, Job 1:6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Okay, there's a question here which says it came comes out of that verse, but I didn't hear it there. But how is it that God doesn't know where he came from? Oh, verse doesn't 7. Verse from. 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? There you and go. Satan answered mm -hmm. the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And then so, the Lord said, Bob, you concern my servant Job. So when God asks Adam in the garden, uh, where why are you? you high? Where are you? Is he... Is he asking that question because he doesn't know the answer? I've I, lost my keys. I don't know where I put them. Yeah. I've lost Adam. I don't know where he is. <laughs> I just, I don't, I think sometimes there are lots of places where God will ask a question and he has other reasons for asking it other than suggest, saying that he, he actually is gaining some sort of knowledge in that. It might just be a, uh, it, it might just be a way of writing that, that drives the conversation forward. Right? Yeah, when I, my kids are doing What's something going on? that they shouldn't be we doing, say, and I've seen them do something that they shouldn't be doing. What are you doing? I what are you often doing? ask them, what are you doing? <laughs> when I've just seen you do something I asked you not you to do. You want them to and, admit it. Yeah, you, I I'm want them to reflect on it and say, I'm not think necessarily about what, what suggesting that, like. that that's completely what's happening here. I'm just saying that, that be careful with the uh, locution. Be careful with the intent here and just assuming that God is gaining knowledge in this and the same thing that I think that uh, there 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 are lots of passages in the Old Testament, for example, that that seem to indicate that God's gaining some sort of knowledge, and we would want to, you know, He says to Abram, at after He sacrificed Isaac or willing to sacrifice Isaac on the top of, of the mountain. Uh, now I know. And okay, so what what does that mean? 
did God gain some sort of mm-hmm. knowledge there? Now, now I know. So you can play around with these issues, and they're big issues to play around with. Uh, but there are understandings of it that that do make sense of God's um, knowledge. Jeff, don't you think there's also something to be said about the fact that the Bible isn't a dictation? You know that that this is God. You know working through human authors well he uses the language we authors use language the way we use language that's what i'm trying to say is when we say when we say stuff like that like kyle is bringing up a way that he normally uses language what are you doing to his kids and i i think it's that very well could be the case here uh with with satan by the way we would suggest or we would say that the, the greatest gift in the greatest thing in the universe is god is it not so, uh, the expression of God's character is the greatest gift in the universe, right? So, if that's the greatest thing in the universe for anyone even to experience, then it would seem to me that that's what God's doing in all these passages. And so, it, the, the reason God can be arrogant and prideful or whatever is because by the expression of his own glory and greatness, that's the best thing for all the creatures in the world. That's different than Darcy being arrogant and prideful. Because Darcy doesn't, he's not the greatest thing in the universe. For him mm-hmm. to point to himself and to say, check me out, is a letdown. Sorry, brother. <laughs> but for God to point to himself, isn't that actually doing everyone a favor? Yeah. So I think sometimes we assume, though, about God that, that wow, he just seems, he sounds mean and so up himself. And so, yeah, he sounds up himself because he should be. That's a good thing. Sorry, that's a phrase you guys don't use here. Uh, so down under they use that, that being someone who's really pompous or yeah. you know really full of themselves. And I'm I, I'm saying that for God to be full of Himself and to express His fullness of Himself to everyone else is a good thing. Whereas for Andy, it's not. How is that not prideful though? Like it for is, Andy, it'd be prideful. But it is, which is wrong. Right. But why is it wrong for Andy to be prideful? can't back it up. That's right. God can. And it's not the best thing for his friends and neighbors for him to point to himself because everyone's going to be like, yeah, thanks, Andy, but I don't think so. But God is. Yeah. I think one of the other things, too, that's important to note is that God's a person, that he has a personality, Mm -hmm. and that you don't get this um, robotic, you know, dialogue taking place between God and people. Um, that I think is important that, that God that God is somebody that we can actually relate to. It's not like I'm trying to relate to some sort of robot that's like spitting out, um, you know, input comes in and there's just output and everything. It's very cut and dry. And it, if that made sense. It did make sense. Good. Glad that made sense. At the end of Job, it says that the Lord made him prosperous again. And this question or listener is saying, as if this makes up for allowing Satan to murder his whole family. I'm not sure what to make of this. Hmm. So how do we, yeah, how do we make sense of that? I mean, God gives him kind of everything back and more. But yet, like, I'm not sure if I was Job, I'd go, well, yeah, that makes up for it. Yeah, I, th- I think you need to take the long view. Uh, and by that, I mean, you, you need to understand that, I mean, most of the book of Job, from my point of view, c- comes, uh, can be made sense of, according to what I, what I just said, which is that God's goal in the universe is not the comfort of his, the, the immediate comfort of his people. It's actually for their long, long-term comfort. 
And I think that what God is trying to do in the book of Job is a greater thing than Job. Hmm. He, he's actually trying to express his freedom, God's freedom. He's also trying to express that it is possible for people to love God even though they suffer. And at the end of the book, it is trying to say something profound about who God is and what his wisdom is compared to the wisdom of men. What I find um, interesting about that question, and I'm not trying to be, you know, if I had the person in the room, I would say this as well, that it is interesting that a book that is trying to point to the grandeur of God and the limitedness of people is now being used as an accusation against God and the wisdom of us. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's the flip of it. The book is saying that God's wise and we're not wise. You know, where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? And where were you when you did these sorts of things? And now we've taken the book and said, well, I was really mean of God to do. How dare you, Lord? Well, that's the whole point of the, of the book, is to put you and I in our place and to say, actually, that God knows more than we do. He sees the end from the beginning. He understands why it is that he does what he does. And you need to stay in your lane when, when it is that you think about these things toward him. And so the fact that he prospers him in the end, I think, is fantastic. Is the Lord trying to make up for what he did? I don't know. I don't think so. I think that it's a wonderful ending to the story in that regard. I think one of the things, too, that often comes to my mind <clears throat> is that God doesn't seem to have a problem with all of us dying. And and I think that sometimes we, we lose that perspective. That it gets back to what Jeff was saying. We have a, we have a very um, uh, limited focus. We, we, we tend to look at this earth and, and our short life, and that this is everything we put our hope in. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that his hope is set on the life to come, that his, his hope is set on, on heaven. And... Uh, and so I, I think that, because even if when you take about like take a look at Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus heals people. And he could have healed everyone, yeah. but he doesn't. And he only heals a, a few people. He, he only goes he away feeds a few into people. the hills at some point when there's all these people waiting to be healed. And he doesn't, doesn't do it. Yeah. Yeah, the big perspective, I think, is really, really helpful. Um, imagine we're on the new earth and we've been there for 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, as the hymn goes. And then we meet somebody who we hadn't met before and talking with them. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the Bible. Really? You're in the Bible? Yeah, I'm one of Job's first kids. Hmm. Oh, so you had, you know, your part to play on the earth when it was fallen. And, you know, you did good things. You did bad things. But you saw the faith of your dad and worshipped the God of your dad. And um, it ended as you didn't expect it, as it does for probably a vast majority of people. But this age that we're in now will never end. And that's that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. The final question on this that I guess the, the listener kind of boiled it down to is, how can we tell when Satan is working in our lives? One thing, silence. Well, one thing that I want, I, I'm always cautious when people talk like that. Because I think that we, we're so quick to give God's qualities and characteristics to Satan as though Satan is omnipresent. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, I, I'd want to just caution somebody immediately um, uh, from talking like that. I, I often find that a lot of Christians aren't, aren't really sure when they, when they talk about Satan, sometimes even too, what they mean. Like, I often hear, not to go down a rabbit trail, but I often hear Christians talk about Satan too as, as that Satan is evil instead of Satan does evil. It's not like there are these dueling forces out there. There's good and evil, and we're sure hoping good's going to win. Um, there's good, and God is good. 
and and there's in a, a corruption of his goodness and and Satan and, and a third of heaven's army, uh, the angels fell with him, and so so yeah, there's a spiritual war that takes place, um, but to but to give God's characteristics to Satan um, is uh, I think for some for some reasons it has kind of crept into Christianity, and I and I hear that. Agreed. You know, I I don't. My answer to this question, as I've been asked this before, is I don't know if it matters. Is that awful of me to say? I, like, I, I think that it, I, when you say, how do I know Satan's working in my life? I, I think that if you understand that God is the sovereign king of the universe, and you recognize that the Lord, mm -hmm. even in permitting Satan to do this, had it, had it done for his own purposes, right. I just think at the end of the day, we're called to pray to God, mm -hmm. our Father, we're, we're, there's not a lot of evidence to say that we're supposed to cast out demons of, of you know, of provinces or, I mean, people cobble together some sort of theology mm -hmm. and then make their prayer life significantly around those sorts of things. I just don't see that in the Bible. What I see is mm -hmm. the people of God addressing God, their sovereign king, about the things they're concerned about. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you can say is, okay, well, Satan or my flesh or the world system, which all work in concert, mm -hmm. are might might be pushing me to do this. I might want to do that thing. And these awful things are either happening to me or I've done them. I, I just think that you need to understand, though, that within God's wider providence, that he got, he's got you. And so this is funny because we just brought up our preaching and stuff. I, I, I actually think that the Lord uses the chastisement from Satan and spiritual forces to bring about better preaching. Mm. And I think without it, I don't think our preaching is quite as laborious and therefore not quite as deep and careful. Because you kind of, could, kind of could bring up the whole Job thing. Like, why does God allow, you know, Jeff or whoever's preaching on Sunday morning to be right. uh, afflicted? Because I feel it every time I speak. Right. Um, but I, 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 I could totally see what you're saying. But God's got a goal there. That's exactly. my point. Is God's got a goal and his agents, the agency mm -hmm. might be evil forces, might be your flesh, might be the devil, right. whatever. The agency m might be evil, mm. but God intends it for good. And I, so I'm going to give him praise mm. for what he redeems out of it. And I certainly, of course, if you're, you know, if somebody comes up to you and you're concerned that they're demon possessed, certainly cast that sucker out. Right. Um, but I, I think that the normal kind of life that we live is God in his providence using everything for the good of his people. And the way you defend yourself from the attacks when they come is you take every thought captive, right? You, you it's a, the battle against Satan and his army is in the realm of the, of beliefs and of how we think about things to be true. So when you, you stand you, firm, even when you feel like you are being attacked, you can remember that What's not happening is not the big cosmic arm wrestling match where where God and the, and Satan are going at it and you just got to see who's going to win this one, right? No, the it's already been won. God, God wins. He's stronger. So so you Satan engage in the work. Right. Right. He, he's his dupe. He's allowed. And and that's the that's the way the Bible presents it. And so I, I don't think you should focus too much on the dupe and, and this, how he has this some some kind of freedom outside of I mean but he's on a leash. Hmm. Well, and this is one of the beautiful parts of what happened on the cross, right? Is is Christ has 
freed us from Satan's authority. And now we, through Christ and his sacrifice, actually have a victory over Satan. We're not bound. We're not chained to him. He doesn't own us anymore. God owns us. And so with that means that doesn't mean we're not going to have the attacks. It just means that we can actually look at Satan and say, you don't know me. Right. And the point that I really want to emphasize, though, in the actual practical living is that is what Luther used to say. He's still God's devil. Mm-hmm. That that it, so we, we talk to God, our father, about these things. We address him. Mm-hmm. And if you have concerns about the way your life is going, talk to talk to your Lord right. about it, who, who might be allowing this season for whatever purpose but it's good and you can be promised right that he will work all things together for good of those who love him and called according to his purpose so jeff when you were having intestinal difficulties over the weekend were you thinking that's uh an attack or i just had too much special sauce on my big mac maybe 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 that was that was my point i did it it was like to me when these things happen i'm like well look there's only one i'm going to i don't feel the need to diagnose it as as I, I'm very willing to say, yes, it's natural, it's spiritual, it's all those things. I, I'm I have a big enough worldview to incorporate those things. The question then is, what am I going to do about it? And the answer is, I'm going to pray to my God who loves me. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'm saying. I just don't want to get somebody get caught up yeah. in this. Like I'm yeah. trying to divine yeah. or figure out whether or not this is Satan or this is the Lord. The answer is, it's the Lord. Ultimately, who is using the agency of others or allowing it i'm happy to go with that kind of language allowing the agency of others and the act itself might be evil and horrible and the lord cringes and is grieved by that he's also permitted it for a greater purpose and in the end you and i and all of us will see that what that purpose was don't don't you think that's the problem though i guess that some people want to pendulum swing one way hard or the other so they'll pendulum swing all the way that everything is being caused by Satan and his demons. And then the other way, this sec- Christian secularism, if you will, where mm-hmm. Satan and demons aren't involved in anything. Mm-hmm. And but we they are. And we never talk about them at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's this balancing act that, ha- that there's this middle ground. Yeah. And John Piper has written um, a book on Job, and it's a, it's a poem, basically, and there's a video, and it's really, really insightful of just looking at Job's struggles and wrestling mm-hmm. with you know, who God is in the midst of all these things. So I recommend that to anyone who would want to investigate it. Cool. Well, thank you for that uh, question uh, or questions. Here's another one sent from somebody at the uh, Mission Campus of Northview. Um, I would like to hear uh, what we have to say about the Sabbath day. I keep kicking this thing under the table. We're in their new table. We have a table that's new, so if you hear occasional rattle, it's because Greg's shifting in his seat. And if you just heard that big crash a moment ago in our soundproof room, we're not <laughs> sure what that was. Sure what that was. <laughs> we but clearly, that? it's not soundproof. <laughs> Sorry, mission. Keep yeah. mission campus. Somebody yes. from the mission campus sent in a question. Um, just a question about the Sabbath day. What what is Sabbath day, and why do we meet to worship on Sunday? <coughs> now, of course it. Abbotsford campus. It's Saturday and Sunday we meet, but why, what is Sabbath day and, and why do we worship on Sunday? Why don't we worship on Saturday? It was uh, under the law, the Sabbath was Saturday. Right? right? So if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you do worship the Lord on Saturday, and they actually believe in the enduring signi- significance of the Mosaic law at this point. 
As a Christian, I believe that we've been freed from that law by the finished work of Christ, who fulfilled it on our behalf. And we worship on Sundays because it's when the Lord was resurrected from the dead. And so people often make a big deal about Easter. Oh, we have we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Every week <laughs> is Resurrection mm. Sunday, from my point of view. And so it's just a it's a historical move from the old covenant to the new is my answer. To the so question. we've thrown around here in the past, like, well, maybe we should try a Thursday night service sure. or a Friday night service. Yep. We do a Saturday night service. If we were in a Muslim context, I'm quite sure we would do a Friday service. Yeah, that's the holy day in Islam. So um, a lot of people who work in those contexts, they'll gather uh, for their church services on Friday because that's mm. the holy day mm. in that context. Good. Um, here's a question. Um, what do you make of Molinism? <laughs> I make cookies out of it. <laughs> what, why don't Andy, I explain? Andy, what do you no, make Andy, of Molinism? do you make... Uh, banana bread, or do you prefer? Oh, you had banana. My bread. wife you actually makes Molinist muffins. Oh, banana bread. I would like if your wife would give me a piece. Of Can that your one wife day. make Molinist muffins? Chocolate chip banana bread. Ooh, he had this morning <clears throat> eating in our meeting. What? It was delicious. He didn't share any. Well, let me just for those people who are interested, let me just explain what Molinism is, and then I just want to explain why it's helpful. I'm going to forever link it to banana bread with chocolate <laughs> chips, <laughs> and that might be helpful. Uh, M- Molinism uh, comes from a. a 16th century Jesuit by the name of Molina. And the idea is, is just a, is this a way of trying to understand God's sovereignty of, of how God knows everything, knows what I'm going to do, and he knows the choices I'm going to make. But yet at the same time, uh, I'm free and that I have this libertarian freedom that I'm able to do stuff. So if God knows everything, knows everything I'm going to do, then the question is, well, can I do otherwise? And then that question raises a bigger question, and that is, well, then am I really free? And so Molinism is just basically this idea of how can we hold those two things, that I'm free and yet God's sovereign, and, and, and try to understand those two things. And, and one, of the th- one of the things that I find, particularly when people are, are dealing with philosophy, is they don't understand that, that not everything in philosophy is trying to give you an answer. Sometimes in philosophy, it's just trying to give you a possible answer to demonstrate that you don't have a logical contradiction. Mm -hmm. And so this is where I think Molinism can be helpful uh, in that it's simply an idea, and particularly the idea is is that, Molinism speaking, is this idea that God knows counterfactuals. He knows Mm -hmm. what you would do in any particular situation. And so maybe it's the case that God has so ordained the, the universe that he has placed you in the exact circumstances that's required for you to come to saving faith. And that those that there's other people who don't come to saving faith, and that's because there is no scenario in which they would come to saving faith. Now, is that the answer? And I, anyone that holds the Molinism, I think they would just say, well, it's a possible answer. That they're not trying to give an answer that they necessarily think is the case. They're just demonstrating that you don't have a logical contradiction because there's a possible answer. And so ultimately... The logical contradiction that he's speaking of is between divine sovereignty and human freedom. So Molinism is a way to try to... as an attempt to solve that dilemma. God knows every possible decision you could make at every possible time. And the world that he has created is he created to save the most possible people. Those yeah. he elected, he elected based upon his knowledge. 
foreknowledge, as seen as foresight, but exhaustive foresight. They're not just simple foreknowledge. We call it just, you know, like he knows just little things in the, like, he knows every decision, at the results of every decision you could ever make and every person in the world could ever make. And the world that he has created is a world where the most possible people can come to faith in Christ. That's, that, that's traditional Molinism or middle knowledge. Well, and that's where it becomes, so like one of the outworkings then is this potential to, com- like a compromise between Arminianism and Calvinism. So that you can still use this election terminology. Right. You should, you should know but, that there are Calvinists... Who would be who? Who would who would say Molinism is is actually true? That God does know counterfactuals, and there are Arminians who argue that Molinism is true. Like mo- but most Molinists are Arminian because they're because they're basing their viewpoint on God's election. They're saying, why does God elect? He elects based upon what He foresees in people. But I, but again, I just want to stress this idea that this is. That this is a possibility. So let me just throw a different one by some people that I think will confuse people. And and you can take <laughs> that's good. I know, right? <laughs> I think I here. just confuse myself. Uh, you have Alvin Plantinga, for example, who is a Calvinist, but yet he holds the, to the free will defense. And so you might be thinking, what? He he's a Calvinist, but he holds to the free will defense. Well, yeah, he holds to it, not because he necessarily thinks it's the case, but again, that it's a possible answer demonstrating. You don't have a logical yeah, philosophy. At times, it, some some places is is like a game, mm-hmm. and the game is trying to avoid certain uh, gutters, like bowling, right? And one of the gutters on the side is the law of non-contradiction that you can't something can't be a and not a at the same time, and so philosophers are playing this game and they're presenting possibilities that something could be logically consistent without, you know, so it's not, it doesn't go into the gutter of law, not, law of non-contradiction, and therefore you can prove that, hey, the argument against, for example, Christianity, if God is, if, if God is all-powerful and all-loving and there's evil in the world, then there's no God. That, that's been the argument for atheists for a long time. Well, planning is like, well, no, there's a way that this could work, and he mm-hmm. argues for the free will defense, even though he doesn't totally, I mean, it's not if you ask him what do you believe the Bible teaches or whatever, he's not probably going to answer that way. But he's trying to say, this keeps me out of the, keeps us out of the gutter, gutter though. So uh, what scripture, scripture passages would you appeal to to show that God knows counterfactuals? Uh, the easiest one is in Matthew twenty five eleven, Or sorry, geez, that's awful. Matthew uh, 11, 20, I want to say 23. I'm coming up with it now. Here we go. Yeah, Matthew eleven twenty. 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you, not, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, mm-hmm. it would have remained until this day. And so here, here you have Jesus saying that there is a possible world where these miracles were done in those other places. And what would have happened had they been done there is that they would have repented. Now, an Arminian Molinist is going to come to this and they're going to say, see, th- th- this is evidence that God chose to, uh, to, to the, the world that he created is a world where Tyre and Sidon don't repent. Okay? Mm-hmm. 
because the most possible people are saved in a world where they don't where they don't repent but others mm. do hmm. um that's from my point of view that's not what jesus is essentially saying here mm. I, I actually think that this goes on and follows to the next passage where jesus hides and reveals mm. things the molinus is armenian is going to say well he hides and reveals based upon his knowledge of these counterfactuals so this is this is the debate, and the, and yeah. and like I said, there are there are Calvinists who who are happy with Terence Thiessen being one of them who argues for a kind of a, what's it called a, 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 a Calvinist Molinism, where he he which is an interesting viewpoint as well. So this is philosophical debate, and people meander in and out about it. It's actually well worth thinking about if you're interested in this. You you can. Uh, go go that way, and it's very it's a very va fascinating discussion. It can solve some problems for you. At other points, it it also leaves some problems because you're left with a god. You're left with the fact then that the world that you inhabit, where so many people aren't coming to faith in Jesus, is the best possible world. You know, where the Jews get slaughtered. This is the best world that God could have made. Are there any resources that you could recommend? readers if they well, want to look into it more yeah definitely william lane craig yeah. is probably the biggest champion of molinism yeah. but one of the things that i've found he, he, he can read his, others what's his on book it. called do you know do you guys know his book on molinism i can't remember well he has is. a book on divine foreknowledge there it is that it, a book by william lane craig on divine foreknowledge would probably do it but uh one of the things that i've noticed is i've heard others um share their take on molinism like gary deweese and others is that every it seems to me that each each theologian or philosopher has a slightly different well, understanding. Well, it's philosophical, right? You're trying to, they're trying to tweak and change and... So don't, so don't think that there's like one form. Mm. I, I've seen it presented in different forms. Right. Mm. And there are people, for example, who believe, so a Calvinist Molinist would actually argue, actually got elected, not based upon what he foresaw in people's response, but he elected. And then he, but he also knows counterfactuals. And so he can preserve a certain amount of libertarian freedom in his people. It's just that when it comes to who comes to faith in Jesus, he is determined ahead of time who that's going to be and how he will bring it about through their free choices. Hmm. So there are ways to play. That's why Andy's right when he says there's like a wide range. <laughs> like Molinism yeah. doesn't necessarily pin you down to one. So William Lane Craig's kind of Molinism isn't the only kind. So it's a, this is the way it is in philosophy. Everybody tweaks everybody's little... Would Molina be thought. happy with the way his name is used? That's a very good day. question. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> So the bottom line question on that one is, is this a good biblical view to hold? Well, it depends. On, I, th I think it depends on how you hold it. Honestly, I, I think the approach that you need to take when it comes to this issue is you need to settle in your mind what the scriptures teach first. Mm -hmm. And then so, so that you can come to the conclusion, right, whatever, whatever philosophical attempts I, I make to try to merge these two ideas together, divine sovereignty and human freedom, that... It has to make sense of the passages of Scripture that speak to it. And I, and I want to get back and highlight it again. Mm. That Your book? Yes. <laughs> Thinking. Well it's on sale. Yeah. <laughs> Answering last five because question. <laughs> <laughs> I want to highlight again this idea that a lot of this, that question that's being brought, is this a biblical view to hold? People need to understand that these views, these philosophical views, aren't necessarily mm. views that people necessarily believe their possible answers to that that can be held to demonstrate that you don't have a logical contradiction. Is it fair though to say I I don't know the history of Molinism uh, that well, but I, from what I gather and and the interactions I've had with it, which have been somewhat extensive, I think it's 
it's a view that was developed philosophically, not necessarily biblically. It's a philosophical view that finds some that. support in the Bible, mm -hmm. in the passage that I just said, that God knows counterfactual, mm -hmm. so here's how this might work out. It's not a view where somebody came along and said, okay, what does Romans 9 teach about this? What does Romans 8 teach about that? What does Ephesians 1 teach about this? What does you know, 1 Peter 1 teach? That, that's not... How's the word election used in the scriptures? What does foreknowledge mean in the Bible? These are, these, are, these are more theological, biblical questions. And I don't think Molinism started there. It has some answers, I think, or attempts at answers to those questions that might be helpful or might not. But, but you need to understand. That's what, but I'm going to say that I take the word of God to be the primary authority. And so I think you need to settle what the scriptures say about it first. Agreed. Plus, though, I would add this, and I would agree with what Jeff just said. We each year, uh, we go to the Evangelical Philosophical and the Evangelical Theological Society. They meet together. And when you go there, and it, so this is the Evangelical you know, Theological Society. These are um, Orthodox believing men and women. Uh, they're all over the map oh, yeah. on this issue. So to say whether or not it's biblical... Yeah, it's a biblical. Like people wouldn't be kicked out. What do you mean by that word? Yeah, is what I would say. What do you mean biblical by it? Yeah, there's. I just read you some verses that talk about counterfactuals. So sure, it is. But at every point, it depends on how you're approaching this. But like, so if the person's asking, you know, is is this heresy? No, well, no, it's not no, heresy. Okay. You want to talk about plausibility structures? Oh yeah, Kyle's another, in it. Another question on here. Can you expound on this and how it relates to God's sovereign election? So, what, Kyle, what is a plausibility structure? Can we just talk about plausibility structures and leave the election bit off for just a minute? Sure. So, this is so helpful. I think, Kyle, what is a plausibility structure? It's some, very similar to worldview. It's how you see the world, but it's built into you by your surroundings. So, what you think is true is largely driven by the people you hang out with. And it's just a, a sociological observation that has some, you know, just legitimacy in it. If you right. think that... Um, the Patriots are great even though they cheated. That's probably because you're hanging out with people that think the but Patriots think, are great even though they cheated. Seriously, and it's usually the people who you want. It's not always the people you want you, you currently hang out with. It's the ones that you want to. It's the community that you want to be a part of. So if you have an affection for a certain community or person or whatever, you want them to think well of you. And so you will, you will believe what they believe, and you will learn what's plausible about reality from from them and what's driving it is more the uh, acceptance within that community than it is necessarily the truth value of of the thing you can see this in the way that the Patriots fans are freaking out and trying to defend Brady and they but again because they define themselves by this community of Patriot fans and we cheer for our team and so it's implausible to us that John Brady could do this or what is plausible is the NFL would totally cheat us over because they hate us. Whereas the rest of the people are like, what? You guys look crazy. What are you? are stupid and crazy. But as a Seahawks fan, I'm like, oh, this is totally what they do, right? Because <laughs> we lost. And... But yep. you see what I mean? Agreed. So what we believe to be true or false or good or bad oftentimes is driven by the communities in which we live. Uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, gives a great example of this. With Often we critique those people in the past that would kill witches, for example. But C.S. Lewis brings the case, though, well, if you thought witches really existed... Do they float? And, ...and were really wreaking havoc right on I your village, that. you would probably kill them too, right? But a lot of this has to do with... Our, and no, they don't float. Because no. uh, the, they're not witches. <laughs> <laughs> but that has everything to do with your plausibility structure. Right. 
Right, and you accept most of our plausibility structures are things that we just accept. Most of the things that we believe, we believe just because we grew up in the Western world or we grew up in, I mean, Canada or the United States or Europe or whatever it is, we believe that there are some things that are just obvious to us. And those things can change over time. Right now, we're in a shift right now, I think, having to do with sexual mores. And I think that what's becoming obvious to people is is different than what it was obvious to to years prior, right? Yeah. So plausibility structure and worldview... Same thing? Well, they can be used very similarly. I think that the point, I actually prefer the term plausibility structure because I think it's more descriptive of of the idea that there are only some things that are plausible within a certain kind of community. And you just, you don't have to form an argument against some things in our culture, right? Right. That, that, for example, that that people are good. that's, That's just taken as obvious to us is it true depends on what you mean by good and all right but but if you go out and you say stuff like that that people are good everyone's going to cheer for you and in 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 western culture right uh you know fulfill your dreams that's a okay i I don't need to argue for that it's just accepted as part of the way that we think about our world that yes that i'm an individual and i my goal in life is to fulfill my dreams and i have a dream so if, if you're, I think the question was about election then, or how, so this is really helpful to think about election is God using certain means or certain circumstances to show himself to people. It's not just a lightning bolt necessarily out mm-hmm. of the, out of the sky. So, um, a lot of the studies with, uh, hemorrhaging faith, which was a study of why people are leaving the church or stay in the church as young adults or Christian Smith's uh, work in the United States about, um, just the way so, so. religion works and faith works. Um, one of the findings of both of these studies was how important it is for families um, to be being faithful and not perfect by any means, but be um, active in a church community and talking about um, the faith at home. And so as kids grow up in that kind of context, not just that they're in a church building or with other Christians there, but they're seeing the faith lived out at home. And so that provides a certain plausibility of, hey, this is what my parents believe. This is the way I think the world looks. So then as they grow and they get older and there's lots of questions that come their way, they see how their parents reacted to those types of things or other questions. They see how pastors or friends reacted to those types of things. So that's a context through which they wrestle with, is this really true? And then they come to the, you know, the, conclusion the pieces of that yes I want no. to, to, to apply, though, in terms of the election question, though, is are a couple. One, the affections that one has are what drive one's plausibility structure. Like if I have an affection for a certain community... That, that's why somebody will change their views on something is because they, they gain a new appreciation or desire to be part of a different group. So I would say that those things oftentimes are out, outside of our control. I, the other piece to me that's the most helpful is what plausibility structures show me is how malleable mm-hmm. people's opinions are. Beliefs. And, and so I, I struggle at times when I, when I think that people say, well, God couldn't convince him no matter what he did he couldn't convince them when i look at plausibility structures and worldview thought i think there's no way are you kidding me people are duped into believing all sorts of things by just the cultural surroundings so this is one of the critiques i would have of molinism is that you here's a here's a viewpoint that says that there's there's no possible world where god could save so and so uh come on now of course there is of course there is if they grew up in the right settings with the right plausibility structures of course there is so I, that's where I tend I tend to apply it a bit more. 
I do think is really helpful. By the way, Christian, uh, or sorry, Peter Berger is the guy who coined this term. He's a sociologist, and he's written extensively on it. So if you like sociology and you want to read Berger, he's not a Christian. Is he Christian? Kyle? I'm not sure. I don't think he is. I think he might have a faith background, but he's not anyway. So he he uh, he wrote about this extensively. Oz Guinness has written a lot about this in Christian circles. I can't think of a specific book right now, but he references plausibility structures quite a lot in his in his writings, and it's it, they're very helpful in thinking through, especially as we start thinking in the in the modern world about why it is that so many young adults are leaving the church and these sorts of things. That the mm -hmm. idea of plausibility structures really come up as, oh wow, this is, could really do a lot of explanation as to what would help them return, or what kinds of factors go into them mm -hmm. maintaining faith. They need to have a robust community of people who they have an affection for, like you know older men, older women, people who they really respect highly and want to maintain the faith and the beliefs that those people have. It, it also is helpful, too, in <clears throat> doing mission work or seeing what's happening in, yeah. in places like Europe or even in Canada here, what's going on in Quebec, and right. why aren't there very many churches there, and why is it so hard to plant churches in, mm -hmm. in Quebec? Mm -hmm. Well, when you take into account their plausibility structure, uh, they're asking a lot different questions than, than mm -hmm. we're asking, right. so it's not whether or not I can believe in Jesus, it's whether or not there even is a God. Or, to go even farther, the question these days is whether or not there's just the physical or there's anything more that exists beyond the physical yeah. universe. Mm -hmm. That really, in a secular culture, those are the base questions that are mm -hmm. being dealt with. And, and so there's not all that um, prior knowledge. And there, Sorry, one, one other piece is that the, this also highlights the importance of <coughs> doing doing things that will adorn the gospel as a community, mm -hmm. right? Because your, your, your activity, your actions, the way you speak about one another, the way you treat people, especially those of the community or at large, thinks don't need to be treated well or should be treated well. How you engage in your actions <coughs> do a lot of work in, in helping people <coughs> see your community as either one that they, they would want to be a part of right, or right. not. So it's not that the actions themselves have the saving capacity. They still have to hear the gospel and respond in faith. But the, the adornment, the, the activity around the, the pro proclamation of the word is going to help address some of those issues that we were talking about right. in terms and, of affection and, and all that tone kind of stuff. in the way that you argue is part of this too. Is if you're dealing in the realm of affection, that people actually, people's plausibility structures are, are driven by their affections and their affections are for people and their ideas. That if you're speaking in a way that is, hey, I'm just speaking the truth, but it's really demeaning. I'm just speaking mm -hmm. the truth. There's a chance that you're that you're actually just defeating the purpose of your communication by the tone of it. Mm -hmm. Even though you might be on the side of the truth, you're defeating it. And I think all of us fail mm -hmm. at, at various points. I, I know I have. I'm sure all of us in the room have failed in, at various points when it comes to this. But it's in the modern world especially, it is really important that our tone mm. uh, is actually adorning the truth of what we're trying to say. Good. Well, we're going to end it here because you've talked about Guinness and burgers. And wow. You're going to go to a pub? Let's <laughs> <laughs> go to Mission Springs for, uh, for a burger. And what else? Is that your favorite Coke. burger? No, Mission Springs? The Mission Springs burger. Uh, I haven't been there for a long time, actually. I was just thinking of where would serve burgers and beer, and I thought of Mission Springs. Interestingly enough, Oz is related to the Guinness family. The Guinness really? Family. Yeah, he yeah. is. Really? Wow. Are you a wizard, too? You get, you get free <laughs> beer for the rest of your life if your last name is good. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Any questions, send them to extra at northview.org. We hope this has been helpful. <laughs>